Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I sat down with Sam Crowther, who is a CEO of Casada, a firm which started off in Sydney, Australia, but has now spanned across the globe, and Sam himself is based out of New York City. I had an absolute blast speaking to Sam. His thoughts were unique on how he approaches the problems that exist around data scraping. Sam spoke how Casada is helping defend organizations against this and how to prevent bot traffic from calling a website and how they, as an organization, are combating these problems. If you're keen to learn more about Sam and Casada, then this episode is for you. So keep on listening. Okay, so I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, Sam. When we first spoke, one, I know that you're you're an Aussie guy, so I really appreciate speaking to Aussie tech startup founders that have grown their business quite uh, incredibly like yourself. So I'm keen to to get you on to talk about what you guys at Casada are actually doing. And I think what's really important about the conversation we're about to have today is talking about what's sort of happening in the market from a behavioral change and, and how people are, are buying online now, but then how you guys are protecting those types of companies that are selling their stuff online. So before we jump on into that, I'd love to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So can you talk to our listeners about your career and how you ended up getting into what you're doing now. Yeah, thanks. Well, honestly, it was it was all a, a bit of a, a mistake getting into security. I just sort of happened upon it uh, one day when I was quite young and realized that breaking things was just as much fun as building them. Uh, so very early on, I was actually fortunate enough to have the opportunity to work with one of the intelligence groups down in Canberra. So that was sort of in my later years of high school. And, you know, I, I work with them at sort of grade 10 through 12. Uh, and that really, I guess, opened my eyes as to the fact that, well, this is a, a is a career path, uh, not just something I do in my spare time. And then, so once I graduated high school, you know, I got to the crossroads of, okay, I got into a software engineering degree, but I also had a job offer from Macquarie Bank at the time, basically to be a red teamer. And I looked at what I was going to do at uni, I looked at what I was going to be doing uh, at Macquarie, and I just thought, you know what, this Macquarie gig looks far too fun and like far too good of an opportunity to pass up. And so I ended up joining them, and, and I was with them for about a year where I just kept you know, coming across the exact same problems over and over again. Um, and thought, you know what, this is probably a, you know, as best a time as ever as I'm going to have to try and start a business. You know, I'm young, I don't really have any responsibilities. Uh, and, and so I left to do that. And then, you know, four years later, here we are. Wow. Okay. And how did you sort of come up with the genesis of what you're doing at Casada now? Did that stem from just your experience at Macquarie or has is that something that's been sort of playing on your mind in, in the background and that sort of helped propel you to go down the entrepreneurial path? No, so, so it came from a few experiences. A big one was Macquarie. That was definitely the catalyst with the problems I was seeing there. And then also just problems I'd experienced in other personal projects. I realized I was sort of at my wit's end trying to find, you know, tools that could solve the problem of automation for me. 
And mm-hmm. then I sort of thought maybe this is something worthwhile solving. Had a crack, built a little prototype, and turns out it was a worthwhile problem to solve and could actually add a lot of value. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm really keen to dive on into that. And one of the areas I'd like to talk to you about today is even before COVID, as you know, that there was a behavioral change in people moving from in-store brick and mortar type of buying to buying online. And even more so now, because people obviously couldn't go shopping and things were closed. But what I'd like to address is sort of the, the data scraping specifically from a pricing perspective. So can you can you explain to our listeners what this is and how it works? Yeah, so if we think about price scraping, uh, what it is at its core is, um, you know, automated catalog checking at the end of the day, right? Instead of going into a competitor's grocery store or physical shop and writing down all of the, the prices, it's an operation that's very, very scalable because it's carried out by machines. And what it comes down to at the end of the day is having machines, you know, check your competitor's prices in near real time across, you know, as many markets as you deem fit. And then using that generally to actually feed into your own pricing strategy, which is a whole nother can of worms. And so do you think that because of people now predominantly buying online because of COVID and recent times of people just naturally adopting to online shopping, has it increased? Yeah, so we've, we have definitely seen an increase, um, in that sort of activity and particularly in areas which are quite amusing, particularly, uh, the, some of the items that were hoarded early on during the uh, pandemic. We saw people that were scraping the prices for hand sanitizer and, and toilet paper. Um, but it's definitely become more of a problem because I think this pandemic has shown people or organizations at least how truly valuable their online presences are, especially Mm -hmm. in a time where most companies cannot sell through brick and mortar. So all of a sudden they're exclusively relying on their digital channels. And for the most part, that is a price game. Uh, And it is important to at least be competitively priced, not necessarily a price leader, but in the realm of of your competitors. Um, So that's sort of awareness from an organizational perspective uh, has definitely ramped up both the intent on scraping others and understanding where their competitors are at, but then also, okay, well, I don't want the competitors to scrape me. So having them look at ways to prevent that for themselves. Would you say it's a fair assumption that a lot of people out there that are perhaps selling online aren't really aware that this is a thing that people are doing and how it actually impacts them? Yeah. So I think a lot of organizations are very much in this boat. And and it, it makes sense because typically the way these bots work is they actually mimic legitimate human behavior, right? It's very, very difficult to to see it going on, right? And, and you know, the age, age old adage in security, you, know, you can't hope to protect yourself from something you can't see. Mm-hmm. And I think it also comes down to sort of a maturity um, journey for a lot of these organizations, given that many of them didn't start in this digital world. So there's still mm-hmm. a lot of learning to be done. And as I say, I think now what this pandemic is accelerating is that learning and the understanding of how valuable information seemingly as simple as pricing can truly be to a competitor and to your own business. 
Would you be able to uh, articulate some of the ramifications to an online retailer if this type of behavior were to continue because perhaps they're not aware of it and now maybe they've heard this podcast like oh I should get onto that what would sort of happen if they it just went by the wayside yeah so there's there's a number of potential impacts and I'll I'll split them up into the business and the technology so from a business perspective it actually if you have near real time uh, insights into you know how someone is pricing uh, you have a huge competitive advantage, especially because, you know, they have a sale, right? You can match that immediately. So there's actually real revenue to be lost. And we've seen this in a number of cases where as soon as one customer has a sale before using us, right, their competitors miraculously were at that same price or beating it. So huge revenue to be lost when you consider that because a lot of, you know, comparison websites obviously rank by price. Mm-hmm. It also helps competitors to undermine and understand where you're moving next, right? If you think about an organization that's trying to break into a market, uh, you know, what better way to understand where the competitors in the market are now and where they may be moving by monitoring how their prices move over time as well. And then from a technology perspective, what tends to happen is these scrapers end up actually becoming such a substantial amount of that organization's e-commerce traffic, which may look great on paper, right? They may be like, wow, our numbers are up so substantially. Mm-hmm. Uh, when in reality, it's nothing that's going to add value and actually costs money, right? Especially in the, the day of, you know, cloud computing where you literally pay per visitor in a sense. And, you also have the impact of real customers because now if bots are consuming a huge amount of your resources, right, you can't serve your legitimate customers as quickly. So again, there's, there's sort of more flow and impacts above and beyond just someone having some intellectual property of yours. Absolutely. One of the questions I'd like to sort of just ask to go a little bit deeper on that is you've got big players out there, as we know, do you think that they are at an unfair advantage because they're bigger, they've got more cash behind them to potentially take out some of the, some of these players that don't have the the power to do that or don't have the knowledge or the understanding about what what's actually happening? And then they're sort of driving them out of a business. Do you think that that's a fair assumption to say? That's a very fair assumption. And we've seen this exact behavior. Um, occurring across our customer base where you know organizations are facing that existential threat right you have a very large external competitor breaking into a market that can afford to beat you and and so they do and so have you had a client come to you before probably being naive to the fact that this has actually been the case, what sort of been their response to you guys saying, well, actually, this is sort of what's gone down here? Uh, how people receive that information? I think it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag, and it generally depends on which part of the business that they're from. So, so a good example, which happened somewhat recently, is we had an organization that knew they were being scraped. So they at least were mature in that sense. They had no idea who it was or how badly it was happening. They just, you know, had an inkling that it was that it was occurring, and so we went into production with them. And, and after a few weeks, sort of did our our end of deployment for a proof of concept report, and it turned out that more than seventy percent of all of the requests to load pages with pricing data were mm-hmm. not human. 
mean, mm-hmm. so first of all, this knocked like the CTO and the head of security off their chairs because they didn't expect to see numbers that high. Uh, though obviously, you know, very ecstatic. Hey, look, good, we've killed them. Um, then the marketing uh, side had a bit of a different reaction because they were like, well, now you've killed all our traffic and it makes us look bad. But then once we actually helped them dig into it, it was very clear to show, hey, your conversion rate is now through the roof because mm-hmm. the only people you're actually running analytics on are real humans. And so once we sort of worked through that conversation with them, uh, they realized the value that we were able to add to them because they now knew exactly where to spend their marketing dollars. They knew exactly how real customers were using their website as well, which previously mm-hmm. was very distorted because bots won't use your website in the same way an actual customer will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's an interesting point that you raised. I was actually thinking about that when you were talking, thinking there's all this bot traffic on people's websites. Their conversion rates would be down because uh, it's it's hard to really detect um, the the human behavior on what that conversion rate actually looks like. So now they're getting accurate reads on what's working versus not working, and then they can sort of hone in on what's working well. But what I now that we've covered sort of the areas of concern, I'd like to sort of speak to you about what you guys at Casado are doing to defend against data scraping. Yeah, so what we've actually built is a solution that can identify automation, right? And and that sort of goes beyond any particular problem. But the reason that's critical is, you know, data scraping is a great example of an activity that's only really economically viable if you can leverage automation, right? So if you can run the operation at scale. So we built a solution that is designed to filter out all of this automated traffic from ever touching the origin, right? So we're really looking at, right, creating a, a, a platform that people, you know, can, or that puts the trust, I guess, back in the traffic that, you know, customers have. Right, hitting their applications and really, as we like to say, you know, puts the internet back in the hands of, of humans as opposed to all of these erroneous bots. And so the way we actually do this is it comes down to two main mechanisms. Uh, one of the, the first one is actually understanding, all right, what is happening in this client that's connecting to my website? Right. We, we go beyond, you know, like something like a traditional WAF might do where it looks at user agent, headers, IP address, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. What we actually do is understand what's happening within the browser. So we want to know, does it look like this browser is being driven by some sort of automation framework or by a human sitting there with their mouse and their keyboard? But that's really what it's about. And then once we know that, we can then go you know, to the next step, which is, all right, well, how are we going to deter them? And one of the really effective ways that we've built is actually by consuming their compute. So we have this mathematical proof of work system that we've built, which is asymmetric in difficulty. So it's very, very cheap for us, very, very expensive for our adversaries. And what we do is we just tie up their resources, computing absolute nonsense, which just drives up the cost. When you're talking about detecting specifically in a browser with a human versus a bot, can you talk about what the differences are just so our listeners can understand like how you guys go about detecting that type of traffic? Yeah. Yeah. So a really good example is then let's take Chrome. Um, Mm -hmm. There's And and let's take, say, Puppeteer, which is an awesome framework for automating Chrome or Chromium. And typically it's used for front-end tests, right? So it has a very valid purpose. 
Now, on the surface, if someone's automating Chrome and someone's using Chrome legitimately on, on another screen, they look very much the same. Like they function very similarly and, and, and you know, from a HTTP layer, they're identical. Mm-hmm. But there's actually a few fundamental differences when you start to look a bit deeper. And that's because the automation framework needs to control the browser, right? And it uses a whole different way of interacting with it to do that. And so thanks to, you know, so many hours of reverse engineering both mm-hmm. in the lab and in the wild, we've actually been able to figure out how exactly these connections occur and how exactly the automation frameworks interact and control the browsers and subsequently how to detect them. And we've done it in a way that actually enables us to do it from the very first interaction. So before even the first page load occurs, which is which is really critical because you know if you're going to let even just one request through before you can profile something. From a you know from a data scraping perspective, you've really failed because data scraping requires but one request to get through to be successful. We've sort of gone into now about how you guys are solving that problem. How so? The conversations you're having with your clients, how are you guaranteeing that these types of outcomes that you can get for your customers? Like, what does that conversation look like? Yeah, so it, it typically starts off with our well, this is. This is what we've seen in the same sort of vertical. But what we do above and beyond that is then once we're actually in production, showing them results, we're very transparent in terms of the data that we provide. So you know, we're more than happy for customers to interrogate all of the data from a logging perspective, from a reporting perspective that we give to make sure that our claims are real. But then also encourage them to, to have a crack at it, right? You know, as a, as a former red teamer, I think there's immense value in, you know, putting your money where your mouth is and mm-hmm. the proof is in the pudding. Of and course. so that's the other part of it is, is we very much encourage customers, hey, kid it, you know, do what you want, try and build a bot against it just so you understand that it actually does what it says it does on the tin. So do they take you up on that offer or is they that common? They do, yes. <laughs> okay. It is, especially with our more technical customers, which is great. And it's always fun to watch their reaction. So once the happy how how are you sort of seeing the the conversations change with we've had all this bot traffic i think before you said 70% versus i don't know now you've got 20 or 30% real human traffic how do you think that's changing the landscape for a lot of these businesses in terms of how they move forward uh with with their growth yeah so i think what it enables again if if we look at it from the the business perspective it enables them to feel comfortable that um they can be more radical with their pricing without competitors being able to get a whiff as easily. Uh, but it also enables them to really understand what their customers are doing. I think that's very, very critical, right? The, the insights that our customers can get versus their competitors who may not use us is huge because they all of a sudden know exactly where they need to invest from a, um, you know, an infrastructure and development perspective, from an advertising perspective, because they, have very clear visibility into what the actual flows of their customers on their websites are. And that that is a huge competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, again, above and beyond just your competitors not being able to reliably capture your pricing data at scale. And then we can get very tricky and help our customers actually, you know, for example, serve pricing data that may not be correct, right? If that's what they would like to do. So working then to turn it around and just completely undermine the value of 
the data that someone may be trying to extract from them. So when you say pricing data may not be correct, do you mean that they're outpricing themselves or they're too low? What do you mean specifically when you say that? So, I mean, a good example may be, okay, if, if we want to have a sale, right, we know that a sale is going to last 24 hours, right? If we detect a bot coming to scrape the price of an object or a product that's on sale, instead of outright blocking it or, you know, letting it see the new sale price, what if we just served it the price from before it was on sale? This creates a very interesting dynamic because now it's very difficult for someone to trust what their mm-hmm. bots are obtaining because now I think, hey, my competitor does not do anything, therefore I don't need to react. And yet in reality, they've got a huge advantage because they're actually able to you know, create these events which are going to drive up consumption without anyone really realizing. That leads me to my next point that I'd like to talk to you about in terms of pricing protection. And can you sort of explain how you guys go about ensuring this happens to avoid competitors driving down the price on every single product? Yeah, so that's really where the the detections from our end mm-hmm. and the the customers, I guess, aptitude for this sort of strategy. So this is very much where it becomes more of a partnership. And and that's the way we love to work is is sort of arm in arm fighting this battle with our customers. But so longer term, the view we take is, you know, blocking is not super sustainable, right? Driving up the cost of running these bots is a good defense. But one of the best defenses we find is actually just toying with the data that someone gets. Because even if you do it just once or twice, the, the psychological impact that has on someone where they no longer can, can trust the data that they're getting uh, is, is huge. And, and again, the way we look at it is we're not really up against bots. We're up against the people at the other end because bots are just a means to an end. And so mm-hmm. if we can deter the individual writing them or the organization that's incentivized to write them enough by undermining the, even the theoretical value that they can have, but that's where we find huge long-term pricing protection for our customers because there's now no incentive for someone to even have a crack. It's, it's all got to be manual if they're even going to do it at all. So do you think that that sort of uh, deters them completely or do you think that they may go away for a bit and then, oh, no, we might have another go at these guys and see what happens? Or what sort of your experience with that type of behavior? This definitely depends on the organization. So okay. some will give up completely. Uh, and, and then there are definitely a small few who keep having a crack every so often. Um, okay. but, you know, to, to no avail. Maybe every few months they'll be like, oh, I wonder if this has changed. Nope. They've still got it. <laughs> Let's go away again. Is there any particular caliber of the people that are pretty persistent in coming back? Is it sort of predominantly a bigger player that are perhaps pretty uh, – keen on coming back or how, it is, is there yeah, sort of a it, trend? It definitely, okay. it definitely is those with more resources to throw at it and more to gain if it's successful. And do you think that, okay, so you've got a big player that is coming back again to, I don't know, gain the system, let's call it that. Why do you think that they keep coming back anyway? Is it is the, is the data that they'll get from uh, scraping this particular smaller player 
that is, is it really that worth it? Like, I'm just curious to see like why someone would continue throwing money and resources at something that you've already sort of deterred. Uh, I'm just really curious in that sort of response on for someone to keep trying to penetrate something. Yeah, it really is. And, and it's for a few reasons. The first one being if your strategy or your whole, your whole business strategy is cost leadership, right? Then it's absolutely critical for your business mm-hmm. to be the cost leader. But then for these much bigger players, their game is not necessarily to beat the smaller companies at everything. It's just to beat them at the, the items which they know people will purchase alongside other things, right? Where they're going to make their margin. So a good example may be um, charges for iPhones. And, and we saw this recently in an experiment that we ran where you know an organization may be willing to take a loss on a charger for an iPhone but they know full well that if they capture your business there, they're going to capture it in other areas, which will take it away from these smaller players, ultimately sending them out of business and then capturing even more, more of the market. And this has been a, a sort of pretty well documented strategy for certain big organizations where they just they destroy the market by winning on a few items, which uh, all of a sudden bring a plethora of new customers to their platform instead of someone else's, and then they sink the other ship. Do you see, uh, is there a trend in these types of items? So you mentioned a phone, an iPhone charger. What are the sort of other items that they're prepared to sort of take a hit on versus they know that they can win on? Are you seeing trends in that space? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a few, like, it's surprising, like paper goods are ones where they might make a lot of money. Uh, it really depends, though. Um, mm-hmm. Again, and it, the reason it depends is because, they're so good at capturing so much pricing information. So they will, again, and it's pretty well documented that Amazon actually have a very special tool that anyone selling on their platform can use where you you click a checkbox and what it does, I think it's called a competitive pricing collector or something. Basically what it does is it analyzes everyone and then puts you a cent lower. So all of a sudden you show up first in all of the Google searches, all of the price comparison websites, uh, you know, any other way someone may be shopping. And so now someone's on my website, bought one thing from me, which we may have decided, okay, look, it's worth taking a loss on that because we want to put X out of business or that type of company out of business. And then we'll just we'll get them on other resources, which you know they could have potentially gone to another shop for, but now they're here, they're going to buy it with us anyway. And I guess when you say one cent, it's not like they're taking off 10 cents per each individual item. So they're not really losing that much, but I guess the gain from doing that is substantial, I'm assuming. Exactly. Yeah. They, they, <laughs> that's all they literally need to do is just, just a one cent different means they, they rank higher than everyone. And the value of ranking higher in all of these online comparison sites in Google and whatnot is, is immense because mm-hmm. who doesn't click the first link, right? And the cheapest one when, you know, you go order by price. Even one cent price. though? But but it's it's the fact that you you appear above in the list. So when yes. someone does the order lower to highest, you you are first. And I think that's what the value of that is. What they truly understand. So are you concerned in your experience of of working in this space that what's sort of going to be the few? Okay, so let's talk at technology products for example. Now, in Australia, as you are well aware of, there there are companies out there that will price match to online. Where do you sort of see the future of these sort of companies? Do you think that there's not really much of a future these brick and mortar stores versus the online sort of retailers because they are buying? I would say 
relatively commoditized product. It's nothing too bespoke. So I'm curious to see like what's sort of going to happen in the future. Yeah. Now I think there's, there's always going to be a place for brick and mortar. Like that's a, an, an experience, right? That, that some people like, and I think particularly for like more high end luxury goods, it makes more sense because that's a, that's a, an experience someone wants if they're going to spend $20,000. Uh, but you're right for these more commoditized consumer products. I think that's going to end up on online very quickly as well. I think in the last, um, you know, few years, there's, you know, been, been a, a relatively steady adoption, um, of the sort of e-commerce sales as, as a percentage of retail sales. I think the numbers in the U S sort of in the late 20, you know, 2009, 2010, about 6% of all e-commerce sales were online. I'm oh, sorry. I'm sorry. All retail sales were online. Then you look sort of 2018, 2019, it was about 15%. In the first eight weeks of COVID, mm-hmm. it rose to 27%. So we had more growth in eight weeks than we had in you know, 10 years prior. That's and I think, yeah, it, it's insane. And, and if I look sort of anecdotally around you know, my family, my grandparents who are now using online shopping services and people who previously never would have now realizing how truly easy it is. Mm-hmm. And how much sense it makes, and why they even shopped the other way for so long. So I I do think that this whole societal change will stick, particularly in the e-commerce space, because it's showing people how truly easy life can be when you don't need to lift your feet off your you know lounge to go and get something that's a necessity and have it delivered the next day. So there are companies out there, they have they have a brick and mortar store, but they're also online. Do you think that over time the evolution that will be companies who are brick and mortar will just be that'll abolish the whole theory of going into a shop and then they'll just purely be selling online? Or do you think that this sort of um approach to being brick and mortar but also online will still be there, but it'll just won't be as prominent as it is hmm. like today? Yeah, I think I think retail space will shrink substantially because I I, I don't think people realize it's it's not as necessary. You can you know you can give the customers better prices shopping online if that's something you want to do. You can also optimize your business better if everything's online. Like that's just the reality. It's it's far more efficient to sell online than to try and manage these stores. What'll also be interesting to see how this is affected is is rules and regulations that come in post COVID. Mm-hmm. Right, we've not yet seen the end of that and how governments are going to regulate things like stores going forward but we know how they're doing it now but i do think if you know if there are material impacts to the you know regulations on how many people could be in a shop at once or whatnot going forward that will exacerbate this even more mm-hmm. that, that's that's really interesting one of the things that the question I'm going to ask you next, which is, I think, incredibly important because I'd like to understand that is your technology only relevant for commoditized products with the same SKU numbers, like you said before, headphones, phone chargers that are commoditized in terms of where you can buy them? Or can what you guys do be more effective for high-end retailers who perhaps have more bespoke products, like fashion retailers, for example? Yes. So like it, it's very applicable to both. And and we actually work across 
all sorts. So we, we do your more traditional online retail who are selling the commoditized goods. We also work with some high-end luxury brands. And, you know, and the reason being is, well, you know, let's take, you know, maybe there's, there's two Italian designers, right, who let's say they both sell bags. Uh, the reality is, you know, whilst pricing doesn't play as much into it as, as sort of a buyer's decision, it, it is much more the brand. There is still power in that, right? There is power in understanding, okay, what is my competitor doing? Because that help from at least understanding how they price can actually help companies understand markets the competitor may be going after. And, you know, that could be an opportunity for me as another designer to have a crack at that as well. It's at that level, it's really about understanding your competitors or preventing your competitors from having as much of a a finger on the pulse, so to speak, of your business as possible. That's really interesting. There was a guy I spoke to oh years ago now, like maybe three years ago, and I remember him sitting down. He was friends with another friend of mine, and he was saying that he had this online sort of store for headphones and stuff like that. And he was just saying, like, I'm losing so much money. And I was like, yeah, because people can just look up the SKU number and then search where it's cheaper. Like there's no real reason in terms – if your store's 20% more expensive, which I think it may have been at the time, why would anyone do that? And so wouldn't it sort of be common sense that people would be thinking that I either have to price match other other players out there or people, people aren't that loyal when it comes to commoditized products, as you're probably well aware of. So where do you sort yeah, of see exactly. that – where do you sort of see that moving? Because you, you've got high-end designers that people are loyal to these brands because of how, how they position them in society, for example, like a handbag, which yeah. I'm very well aware of. Um, but what what do you sort of think for the for these other stores that are perhaps just, I think they'll end up just phasing out because they can't compete? Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to is, is it's, it's really adapt or die. And you know, I think anyone who's just selling purely commoditized goods at the moment is probably going to struggle severely going forwards. Uh, I, I I do really believe that you know protecting at least just the the pricing data and the items that you're selling is very valuable because it also lets you make moves, right? So like let's say you're you're purely just selling electronics and you mm-hmm. decide to come and move into a new market now. If you can prevent your competitor from figuring out that you've moved into a new market automatically, right, again, that may give you a week's advantage before they can even think about reacting versus the moment you start selling something new, them going, okay, look, well, now let's try and try and counter it. So I think it's just, it really comes back to, you know, putting up a, you know, a smokescreen around, around your business because it is truly unbelievable what you can learn from a company just by understanding both pricing and inventory, right? Like if you can scrape someone at a high enough rate where you can watch prices change in real time, which more or less, you know, sometimes will actually occur, you know, based on world events, but then also, you know, sort of how much inventory they've got and whatnot, you can really understand reverse engineer, at least their strategy, which is really scary if you think about it from your own business. What do you think are some of the insights that you're deriving from uh, analyzing someone's pricing or inventory strategy? Yeah, so a good example that I mean, that, well, okay, there's, there's a few. So let's let's take the first one, which is investments. Uh, this is something that we've we've seen 
pop up more and more recently. When you can scrape someone's inventory and pricing through their website at a high enough rate, you can actually reverse engineer earnings. That lets you play the stock market. That's a big no-no. So we've seen this done a few times. It's not a difficult thing to do. There's a pretty sophisticated industry around it called alternative data sources. right? But now all of a sudden, you know exactly what someone is going to earn well before they announce it. So you you know you could long the market short that or sorry, long that stock or short that stock or whatever it may be. Similarly, if your competitor can figure that out, especially if you're a private company, that's you know, that's pretty valuable intel. It mm-hmm. also lets them figure out, okay, well, what are you betting on? Like what do you think you're going to sell lots of? What is something that you're, you know, is is a very popular item. So how could I potentially hurt you the most by trying to steal that away from you? Yeah, for example, right? Like let's again, let's take the iPhone charges. It's a it's a small example, but if I see okay, competitor X who I know is a you know a sort of a e-commerce retailer who sells mostly electronics and never tends to have too many of one thing, but is really stocked up on iPhone charges lately. So clearly they've invested a lot. Uh, first of all, is there something that I need to be aware of happening in the market? Second of all, okay, what if I just start to beat them and prevent them from selling that stock? Now they have a huge amount of cash tied up in all of the stock. And if they can't move it, again, problematic for the business. That's, that's what it really comes down to. Like it's almost like counterintelligence or yeah, counterintelligence <laughs> in a way. Like it just is such a good way to understand your competitors and it enables you to hurt them. When you spoke before, that is really interesting. Uh, when you're talking about uh, the stock market, like whether you're going to short or long something, do you do you think people are doing this? Like, how how common do you oh, think this is? Yes, definitely. Yes, I mean it's 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 very easy. It's truly unbelievable. If you, yeah. We've seen it quite a, a few times. It is very interesting. So, um, do you think there's going to be regulation then around this? Like, people can't do that because it's kind of like, like we said earlier, like gaming the system because then it, it might I be perceived mean, as unfair sort of behavior of getting intelligence it, on a company. It could be, but the but you know, it's really very similar to sitting outside of a Woolworths and counting cars and looking at someone's tr- or trying to look at people's faster. trolleys as they leave. Yeah, but faster, which again means it's more dangerous. But whether or not you can regulate that is is questionable. But you know, if you're the CEO of a public company and someone's playing the stock market against you, I mean, that's that's definitely not great. It's not a favour to you, then, is it? No, no. Uh, and it, you know, it's it's a very easy way for hedge funds and other investors to to get ahead, right? Because it's they they literally don't lift a finger. They write their bots and they go and let it do its thing, and it comes back with the results a few days before earnings, and then they go ahead and make their investments. I was just about to ask you. That's funny that you mentioned that. So, do you think that hedge fund companies are doing this sort of approach to Ooh, yeah. to win? Yeah, yes, definitely. <laughs> and what's your what's your sort of thoughts on that? What do you think about that type of behaviour? Do you think that it's oh. highly unethical? Is as a, a way to put it, but do you think that this will be the future of how people are actually performing uh, in terms of what they're doing with stocks? Do you think that this will purely be that, I don't know, in traditional ways, old mate sort of doing analysis on his own? Well, well, that's phased out. But now you've got something that can automate it that's 10 times faster and more accurate. Do you think that'll be the way forward in terms of hedge funds? Yes. Yeah, so I imagine it'll be a combination of both. I have 
I know people who work in some of these firms as as analysts, uh, and I know this is actually used this sort of data in modeling and and investment decisions. <laughs> so it, it's very real, and especially when you consider if you've got a few billion dollars to play, and you can say reverse engineer the earnings of an airline, right? Yeah, you only need to tie that up for a few days if you're going to short it all longer and then mm. it's off your books and you've made a big profit. Wow. So how are people uh, not deeming this as – I know it's not insider trading. I know it's not that, but it kind mm. of feels like that, right? Yeah, it does. It's a it's an unfair advantage, but the reality is, you know, anyone could do it. That's the thing. Like it's – yeah, it's not like you're – it's not – it is publicly available information, technically. They're just obtaining enough of it at scale to use then deductive reasoning or deductive logic say. to understand what's going on. Yeah. A, a good example, like very practical example, is with airlines. Right? You know how when you go to book a ticket, it'll show you all the seats that are available and their prices. So if you request that every you know second, let's say, on a given airplane, every time a seat vanishes, you know the last price of the seat so you add it to, okay, they've booked this revenue. And and that's literally the whole operation, just at immense scale. So what do you sort of think then is the future then of the airline industry because of this? And obviously because of COVID, people not traveling, like, do you think this will have huge ramifications now? I mean, I am definitely no expert in this sort of area uh, from you know, and, and commenting on the industry perspective. But I, I think this whole shift in general will mean that these sort of tactics are even more important, just as they are from like a competitive standpoint. I think people are going to realize more than ever now they can get a better picture of someone's revenue through this sort of mechanism to make mm-hmm. these sort of investment decisions. Wow, this is absolutely wild. So, Sam, I have absolutely loved this interview. I think that you have provided our listeners with so much insight about the market in general, what you guys do at Casada, but also uh, some some tactics out there that may be deemed highly unethical. So I think that you've given so much uh, knowledge and insight. If people are curious to ask you a question that perhaps I didn't ask you myself today, how can they go about getting in contact with you? Look, so I mean, I'm you know, obviously very active on LinkedIn and Twitter. My email is sam at but also, you know, visit our website and you know, send an inquiry. I really enjoy talking about these sort of problems with people who are interested and also love showing people some of the cool things that we can do. No, I no, I really love what you guys are doing. So um, really appreciate the time today and, and your, your insights. Thank you so much, Sam. Of course. Thanks for having me, Carissa. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.